everyone then, and uh, welcome to this webinar and this interview today. Um, I'm Francis Seeley from Global Net 21 and Impill Voices, which is a local group. And this is one of the uh, many webinars we do. But what we're doing today is, is sort of interesting. Um, you know, we're, we're not doing a normal interview of, of someone involved in community action. We're interviewing Tony Kusumbas, who is passionate about debate and has been for a long time. And debate is really, really an important skill. And it's something that all of us can learn. And it helps us formulate our arguments in a better and more cohesive way. And it helps us in our attempts at public, public discourse. So Tony's going to talk to us about that because it is an important thing to do, especially in the age of fake news and social networks where we don't get rational debate. So Tony, thank you for joining us today and for taking part in this. And if I can ask you, without you going into too much detail, because we've got lots of questions, if you could start by telling us a little bit about your own background. Yes, thank you, Francis, for um, having me today. Um, and welcome to all of you um, who are um, here in the meeting and everyone else watching as well. Um, so a little bit about my uh, background. Um, well, those who may have maybe meeting me for the first time here, um, may have seen me pop up occasionally as uh, the director of um, an organization called the Great Debaters Club, which is what I've been doing for the last uh, four years. Um, but going back a little bit further to where my background actually uh, starts and where my interest in debate really starts and how it led me to um, what I've been doing for the last the last four years professionally, but for the last 10 years or more as, as a, um, a, a, a hobby and a passion. Um, it really starts um, back when I was uh, a teenager. I was uh, the son of a, a lawyer and a, a teacher, which I suppose therefore uh, makes it kind of um, sensible that I'm going to become a debate trainer uh, later. And I suppose uh, where my story started in terms of my interest in, in debate um, was the moment I became really poignantly aware for the first time of how there are at least two sides to every story. Um, and I, I think I owe that partly to my um, dual ethnicity uh, being English and Greek, as well as um, to generally being encouraged to debate at, at home, at the dinner table. But the specific moment that I often think back to was during the uh, Kosovo War in 1999. And um, in that time, most of the, the media coverage that I'd been uh, watching and seeing was purely here in the UK, which focused very much on uh, the, the dominant narrative of that conflict here in the UK. And then I went to, to Greece to see my family for, for Easter, the, the height of the conflict, and saw, and saw the story being, that's all that conflict rather, being presented in a very, very different way with a very different narrative uh, by the Greek media. Um, so whereas the English media here would focus more on um, the situation in Kosovo itself, it would focus on the ethnic cleansing of, um, of the, of, uh, the of Albanians. Um, in Greece, the coverage would focus much more on the uh, 
bombardment of Belgrade and on the civilian casualties there of the, the bombing campaign. Can, and, can, can, can I ask you then, because yes. I mean, that, that's quite interesting that that's sort of where your passion started when you saw what happened in Kosovo, but what is debate then? Is it the ability to both see and practice two sides of an argument? Sure. So uh, where I was, where I would, the reason I started there, the reason I was going to um, take that, where I was going to take that is because precisely um, when you are, let me put it this way, debate is about accepting that um, any kind of decision you will, you will ever make where it's not obvious what, what to do, and there's more than one option, there's more than one viewpoint, it is the acceptance that any decision you make will carry a cost, a cost that will need to be justified. However strongly you feel about whatever it is that you are doing, um, and the reason I went back to that moment is that that was the first time I became really aware of that. And that's very much guided uh, the way I look at any kind of, not just current affairs, but also um, generally how I, I look at decisions that I have to make in, in my own life, in my own professional life as well from that point on. However right you think you are, you still need to accept that whatever you want to do will carry a cost and that cost will need to be justified especially if you're having to work with other people who feel very strongly about an alternative course of action in order to make a decision that both of you can accept and it's that part that's what debate is working with someone to make a decision that everyone can accept even if it means um, making a choice that is runs very much counter to what another group of people really want to do or really believe. I mean, it's, it's interesting that you came to debate that way. I mean, many people come to debate, such as in the Oxford Union and so on, because they think it's fun. They're a student, it's great. But you see it as, as having a real practical use um, in actually seeing two sides of an argument. When you look at the House of Commons now and council chambers, do you ever get despondent that the real skills of debate and the real purpose of debate is lost and it's sort of diluted there. It's not what you think it should be. Um, I think that's, that's, that's a, a, fair, a fair observation to make. I, I, I would be very reticent to try and um, judge all MPs um, and try to apply a judgment, a blanket judgment to all MPs, because there are there are some who are extraordinary, who are many, in fact, who are extraordinarily conscientious about their their duty as members of Parliament and um, incredibly committed, not just to um, defending their own point of view with evidence, but also working with people on the other side of the aisle in order to reach a conclusion that, that everyone can accept. But having watched debates in, in, in Parliament and gone to the gallery and taken groups there, delegations there to watch debates, I've certainly seen examples of arguments being made in a way that I would uh, call up as being less than constructive if they were, if they were used in, in, uh, an, in a, a debate that I was hosting. And of course, um, we're in the age of social networks now, and you, you must feel sometimes that uh, you know the, the, the skills of the debate are totally lost because you get people who want to be in echo chambers. You get a lot of abuse. 
you get people who come on social networks who cannot see the other side of an, uh, an argument. Does that make it, in your view, that the skills of debate are more necessary than ever now? Obviously, my answer to that is going to be yes, but I think that answer would be would probably wouldn't be helpful without really going back into what we actually mean by debates, because certainly when if, if I use that word without any kind of context, then to a lot of people who don't have the 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 grounding it, the experience and, and the passion for it that I have, um, then we'll quite understandably define it more by just what they see on the surface happening which is two people disagreeing with each other butting heads and and deliberately disagreeing with each other mm. and especially when disagreement is something that we generally shy away from and and see as being um i, I see as being an obstacle to working together rather than a crucial part of working together that 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 can must seem really really strange to people so i think um rather than than use the word debate there i think really what we have to reclaim in the first place is the importance of encouraging um, and embracing disagreement and seeing it as a virtue um, but like all virtues it really depends on, on how it's done um, just in the same way that we are all participants in a democracy one of the oldest democracies in the world and yet um, we only have to look around the, the, the globe to see that there are examples of democracy being done well and democracy being done badly just being democracy doesn't automatically mean you're going to enrich the lives of your population and the same goes um, when you are in a debate, if if you are not approaching a debate with the purpose in mind for which it was designed, which was which is to reach a decision that everyone can accept and see as fair and legitimate, even if some of them disagree with the outcome, and if you approach it instead as just with the intention to just beat the opponent into submission, then you are going to end up having a poorer quality of debate and exacerbating some of these problems and driving people even further away from wanting to um, improve their debate skills. So a lot of people that go into debates go into it because they love the fun of it and you know just want to get in, they want to make their speech, they want the theatre of it. Um, but you have a mission. You have a mission which says debate is useful. You don't, you're not there to debate. You're there to tell people how debate can be useful. So you do a lot of work, don't you, with other organisations and with schools to spread that mission. I've done a, a bit of work with schools. The work I've done with schools has mainly been on a, a voluntary basis uh, because the, the schools I've worked with have traditionally been um, state schools or higher education colleges, sorry, further education colleges, where the, the budget wouldn't be available for um, a, a formal um, debate training scheme. So I would go in there as a volunteer. Um, and and certainly there are, there are obstacles to getting the most out of debate training in those environments that, that, go, that go way beyond just debate training not being um, available and affordable and that could be the subject of an entirely different webinar 
but more broadly what that's been part of especially when combined with what i have been doing for a living of, of running um great debates club and hosting free public debates twice a month for best part of 10 years now um, is making debating accessible to people who would have been put off by its image or being something of an elitist sport rather than an invaluable life skill that we all need and that we all use every day. So you you also, don't you, um, you actually set up workshops as well, training workshops to help people develop the skills that you're talking about now. That came later, yes. So started off just running as a, a hobby horse, really, running um, public debates, people to come along to. When I first started that, it was initially just for people like me who had left university, uh, where I did a lot of debating, where I found it really useful in all areas of my life, and then found myself um, as a as a, a, a graduate with, with nowhere to go to continue debating. So I set my own club. Um, and when I saw people coming along to that, not those who had debated before university at school, but rather those who had never done it because they'd been put off by its, 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 uh, this um, elitist reputation it has, um, coming along and getting a lot out of it, eventually those people started asking for training as well in order to feel more confident doing it so they could participate more and learn how to apply it in their lives more broadly. And that's when the training workshops started and the debates then served a slightly different purpose, as well as being open free debates for anyone in the community to come along and take part in. It was also an opportunity for people who'd gone through our training program to test their skills that they were developing in a live environment, but also a, a safe space where they could experiment with these skills, experiment with attempts to engage with different points of view, defend points of view other than their own, without having to face the adverse consequences they might experience if they tried doing that from a standing start in the workplace, for example. Okay, well, let's look at a couple of arguments um, that people have that show they have reservations about debate. Sounds like we'll be getting into a debate, but we're not. Um, uh, you know, one of them is that the trouble with debates, it, it is adversarial. Um, and uh, you may say it's about uh, reaching an agreement, but very often it can do the second and uh, it, it can do the opposite rather. It can make people harden their positions. And isn't there a better form of discourse like citizens assemblies, for example, where you try to get an agreement through a, sense, a consensus rather than, you know, bashing each other in a, in a way. And as someone who's just typed in here today, Anne Bennett, um, you know, you want meetings where they're not just a decision, but their outcomes and the debate format, as opposed to a consensual way of doing things, doesn't create those outcomes. There are probably three things I pick out of that, because that's a really, really important question, but there are a few things need to be unpacked. Um, the first is that the purpose of, of debate isn't to reach agreement. It's, it's to reach acceptance of a decision, even if you disagree, uh, which if you think about it more broadly is the purpose of democracy. The, the second thing to unpack is that adversarial debating and things like citizen assemblies of which I'm a phenomenally enthusiastic supporter are not mutually exclusive. Um, you can do both of them. Um, you can use different styles of discourse for different scenarios. Uh, for example, if I was having a brainstorming session in a meeting, I wouldn't use an adversarial debate format. 
because I wouldn't want people to feel like they were being pigeonholed to commit to a certain position and defend it. I just want people to speak their minds, think freely without having to commit themselves to a point of view because we weren't trying to reach a decision. Um, but let's say that we're going to a point where we have to decide, we have to make a decision right now. Are we going to hire someone or fire someone? Are we going to buy a company, sell a company? Um, are we going to stay in a relationship or end, in a rela or end a relationship? These are decisions, these are binary choices. There is no middle ground between them. And it means that ultimately, whatever you decide is going to come at the expense of something else you could have done, which means it will come at a big cost. And that cost needs to be justified. And the only way you can do that is by being willing to confront head on the points of a disagreement between the parties and say, right, we're going to talk about these. A bit like you would in a court case, for example. When you're in a courtroom, you don't have the barrister saying, let's just all get along. Let's try and reach a consensus about what we want to do. You say, no, there is this person is either innocent or they're guilty. We need to find out which, because it's going to have a massive impact on their lives and on the lives of the person who who is who is who has brought this case in the first place, who appears to have been a, a victim of potentially a horrendous crime. And we need to find out the truth. And that means we need to sort out and clarify exactly what it is we disagree on, the facts of the case, for example, and whether someone behaved illegally or not. And you have to be willing, therefore, to engage with different points of view rather than try and get everyone to agree, which can and often does lead to brushing points of disagreement under the carpets, which will cause you trouble later on. OK, and another argument that's given is that debate creates theatre and entertainment. And people love watching debates, those who like debates, because they like the cut and thrust of it. And some people will argue that's not a very good decision-making forum because the entertainment takes over from the rationality and dilutes the whole thing. How do you respond to that? I, I, I agree with that. I, I, I certainly agree that if, if people are watching, um, watching the debate for the theatre itself, then yes, that's a problem. But at the same time, the theater is also a really important part uh, because not because there is some kind of, there is some kind of virtue in entertaining people when having a very heated disagreement. But if you think again about a barrister um, or if, you're in, if, if, if there are any Americans in the audience, an attorney um, who, may, uh, who may make uh, their case in, in defense of prosecution with a real theatrical vigor, I know a lot of barristers who do have a, a strong interest in the arts and even do have a background in, in the performing arts that they continue on into legal careers for precisely this point. And the reason is, is because unless you can reach your audience, it doesn't matter what the substance of your point is. If you're unable to get them to just sit down, shut up and listen to you for five minutes um, to take an interest in what you're saying, it doesn't matter how right you are. It doesn't matter how clear cut your reasoning is. It doesn't matter how strong your argument is. So a degree of theatre or what I would call simply an ability to communicate is really important because if we just left it purely to the substance, those would be incredibly dry um, arguments to watch and we might not get the theatre but we probably wouldn't get many people watching in the first place. Um Debate uh, is interesting in many uh, respects. One big attribute of it, um, and I think you sort of 
mentioned this is when you look at social networks and so on, you can see that people put themselves into boxes. They believe strongly in what they believe in and they just won't see the other side. What the school of debate does, doesn't it, do is it makes you sort of, uh, you know, walk in someone else's shoes, see their argument, see their side. And if you can see their side, you can make it clearer what your side is as well. I think this is perhaps the single most important facet of debate that people who um, have understandable reservations about the format um, would probably uh, probably miss sometimes, which is being a student of debate means first and foremost defending whatever position is given to you to defend. If you come from a background, which to be honest, isn't really my background, but a lot of, for a lot of debaters it is. If you come from a background where you went to, we took part in lots of competitions, debating competitions at university. In those competitions, you get, you only find out what the topic is you're debating uh, 15 minutes before you have to debate it. You only find out what side you're on then 15 minutes before you have to debate it. You only find out whether you're speaking first or speaking last 15 minutes before you debate it. And what that what that instills in you is a remarkable versatility um, to a broaden your general knowledge to be ready to talk about anything with some kind of authority and have at least some evidence to be able to present at a moment's notice. And it also uh, requires you to familiarize yourself with arguments on all sides, not because anything particularly significant rests in it, but just because at the moment that's what's fun for you. That's what makes it interesting. That's what will help you win. But that skill, of course, will serve you very, very well later on down the line when you're engaging with, with different points of view. And that's something that if you are using other formats where purely discursive formats that will focus more on, well, you just say your point of view and I'll just say mine and we'll try and work together. That's something that you don't necessarily get. You can't really understand what it's like to walk in someone else's shoes until you've actually been stood up in public and had a go at defending their point of view as if it were your own and been judged for it. Yeah, I mean, taking the argument as something you don't believe in is fun, but it is also transformative in a way because it actually makes you uh, look at other people differently. And, uh, and that's useful even in a consensual discourse uh, environment isn't it because it it helps you establish your argument in your position more clearly than you would have otherwise absolutely 100 um it's it's it also helps you speak to diverse audiences in their own language so one of the most interesting projects that i was working on um before the before the pandemic but paid to that um, was working with um, PhD researchers in, in the biomedical sciences um, and working with them to train them to have uh, public debates on things like vaccination and getting them to put themselves in the shoes of people who would be um, vaccine hesitant um, and even going to the extremes of people who, were, who we um, commonly label as anti-vaxxers and and uh, I use those two labels separately because not everyone who is reluctant to get a vaccination is automatically in the same league as someone who subscribes to various conspiracy theories about about uh, vaccines but let's not get into that right now. Um, the point is that uh, 
that that working with that particular cohort, um, what made it so interesting was that when we had a when we had a, a public debate at the end of um, our training program, there were a hundred scientists in the room, um, which made it quite which made it quite nice because it, it meant you were able to literally calculate the what percentage of the audience was in favour against by counting hands in the room, and. Um, before the debate started, and this debate was about whether vaccine, whether whether childhood vaccination should be made mandatory. Before the debate started, ninety-six percent, so ninety-six out of hundred in that room, were in favour of making childhood vaccination uh, mandatory. But one of the teams had been practicing how to make an argument that had, until then, been very unfamiliar to them, which was the defence of personal parental autonomy, and when they made an argument and made it in a language that they felt that other scientists like them could also understand, by the end of that debate, that number had shifted from 96 in favor to just above 50. And the room was much more evenly split and it only took a one hour debate to achieve that. So debate can be used to shift a person's viewpoint. Um, it may not happen as much as we like, but we know it can happen. Uh, whether it does it temporarily, whether there's a long-term shift is a, another question. But you said down the line it has uses as well. And one is, for example, public speaking. If you learn the skills of debate, it helps you with public speaking, doesn't it? It gives you the discipline. I remember the story where Churchill was asked to open a fate during the war when he was under pressure and busy. And um, he, he went there and they didn't expect him, but he went there and he spoke for 45 minutes. And they said to him, well, thank you for coming and for speaking for 45 minutes. And he said, well, I'm really, really sorry. I just didn't have the time to prepare a five minute speech. Now, debate gives you all sorts of disciplines. If you're going to do public speaking, those skills, those disciplines are also transferable, aren't they? Yes, um, and especially impromptu public speaking as well, or public speaking without having um, memorized a, a script beforehand. Um, you can always tell when someone is reading uh, from a script or reciting one uh, from the way they speak. Um, their speech sounds much more um, wooden. It sounds like the audience is being spoken at rather than being spoken to, unless of course they're at a level of say like a, a TED speaker, for example, where they will have memorized speech, but they just be so good at speaking that it will sound like they're making it up on the spot, but that's a whole, a whole new level. Um, but uh, that's really important because when you are speaking to a room, if you're going to get your audience to really engage with you, to really listen to you, to ask you questions and take something away from what they've heard, they really need to feel that you are speaking to them, not at them. And because debating is all about having to come up with something quickly to say based on the vast repository of, of knowledge and diversity of arguments you've been practicing for months beforehand and then bring them to bear in that one moment that you need them and speaking off the cuff and sounding like you're making all this stuff up, even though this is a product of months, maybe even years of practice. Um, that allows you to go into a room, just uh, a few notes, put them down to one side and then speak what seems like to your audience impromptu. So you, you're trying to encourage spontaneity, even though there is a lot of preparation that goes into spontaneity. Sounds like a contradiction in terms, but it isn't, is it? Structured spontaneity, yes. Yeah, I think that term is very good. Um, 
lots of people though would be really really nervous wouldn't they at doing debates um you know standing up in front of an audience making a case it's 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 a terrible ordeal for a lot of people how would you encourage those people to have a go at debate or if they can't what would you encourage them to do so certainly go along to to meetings like the ones you're organizing for example where where you've always provided a platform for people to, to speak up initially just from the floor asking a question making a comment which is a good start just to have a few uh, a couple of minutes to speak and then build up from there um there are a few public speaking clubs that i distinguish from debate clubs where you can go along and and speak just give your views on current affairs and you'll be encouraged to make an argument of sorts, but you won't be required to go head to head with someone on a particular topic. I'm, I'm more than happy to recommend some if anyone wants to, anyone wants to follow up with me about that afterwards. Um, and, um, and then once you've had that opportunity, then joining something like a debate club or even just getting a few people together yourself and you know, hiring out a room and inviting people to come along and make your own debate that's pretty much how i started there's no reason anyone else can't do it either um and just creating for yourself that that safe space in which everyone accepts um in good faith that you are having a go trying something that makes you a little bit uncomfortable and will take that into account when it comes their turn to, to grill you ask you questions and then and then vote and decide how they feel about um, the argument you've made and then give you positive feedback afterwards which itself will help you build the confidence you need when it comes to using that skill in a live environment where there will be consequences for doing well or not doing as well as you would have liked but that's a that's a huge step for some people i remember a survey done decades ago and it's probably relevant now where they ask people what they feared the most for me it would be heights i would hate it but they found that most people feared speaking in a group that was their number one fear and a group wasn't big it was like four or five people they were afraid of it so you you telling people to go to groups and so on could be quite traumatic for some people how do you get those people to be involved or is that something that's impossible to do yes so i, I can actually give you uh, a, a, an example of, of of dealing with exactly this and, and i can say i can start this by saying i i completely understand um how that feels not not because i've had um a fear of, of public speaking as you can tell i'm quite comfortable with it uh, for me the and people who know me find this quite strange actually for me the the all-time fear is uh networking events going into a room and having to go up to strangers i don't know well obviously i don't know they're strangers um and introduce myself and start conversations that 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 scares the hell out of me um and i i find myself literally shivering sweating um and then heading straight for the buffet table and in those events and not talking to anyone and maybe someone will come and talk to me make my life a little bit easier so i understand exactly how palpable that that fear can can feel um and it's quite it's quite funny that people who feel comfortable in those settings tend to be the ones who will feel really uncomfortable doing what i do and speaking in public so we often have a good joke about that but to your question what can I actually do? So when the when uh, the club that I ran, the Great Debates Club, when when it um, was in its infancy, uh, we just held debates pretty much with only a few days' notice, and we just invite speakers to to, to volunteer to take part. 
uh, and there was no formal training program or structure or anything. And as a result, most of the speakers tended to look and sound like me. We'd have white men doing pretty much all the speaking, doing all the volunteering. It wasn't because there was a, a lack of diversity in the audience or a lack of interest among uh, women or people of color in the room to speak. It was because they didn't see many people like them on the panel. And when I go up and speak to them, I found that if I would say give a, a few words of encouragement, if I pick up on something that I'd heard them say in the Q&A, for example, which is a good place to start, by the way, for speaking, just go to speak up in the Q&A, one minute, that's it. Um, and tell them I found it interesting, I'd like to hear more about it. And then, and then I set a debate on that topic. I went back to them and said, you know what, I would really like you to speak in this because you had a lot to say about this. I'll give you some time. Let's perhaps we sit down and have a chat about how to do this. Um, that dramatically increased the diversity of our panels. And I've similarly found it useful if I'd gone to a networking event with someone who's really adept at how to do those things. You can almost coach me through the experience. So my first port, so what I would suggest people who are going along, especially they feel more comfortable speaking to people one-on-one -on -one and speaking in public, is perhaps mingle with some of the people in the audience, or maybe go up and speak to one of the speakers after an event and say, I feel really uncomfortable with this. Um, what suggestions could you give me? Could perhaps we have a chat before I speak in, at an event like this, just so I feel a little bit comfortable, a little more comfortable, a little bit more reassured that I, that I know what I'm doing. And that can and does make the world a difference. Okay, well, we've sort of gone over our 30 minutes now. So last question. If people wanted to find out more about, um, I know you're going on to Pasha's New and, and, and you're not doing as much as you used to, though I'm sure you will come back into it in a big way. But if people wanted to find out more about debating skills and, um, uh, and to be able to practice those skills, where would they go? So as you've correctly pointed out, the, the, I've, I'm moving on to Pastors New and the, the Great Debaters Club uh, itself is no more. Um, but um, there, we do still have our, our Facebook group that's been going for some time that we've now um, uh, rebranded uh, Talking Points. And that's, that's a group that anyone can join. So, and we are still going to be holding um, virtual debates and, and and discussions as well, multiple formats too, for those who are perhaps not that comfortable with adversarial debate. We use a variety of formats, and there's also a whole bunch of really interesting people um, on on in that group uh, to meet and get to know too. Okay, all right. Well, thank you for doing that because you've you've done so much for the debating world, and I think everybody appreciates that, and you articulate it incredibly well. Um, so, you know, I think people will have learned a lot about this, a lot about debate, and and discover things about debate that they never realised before. So, you know, thank you for doing it with us, Tony. And, um, you know, we've come to the end of our time now, so we'll uh, finish this interview now. <music>